The reading of God's holy word tonight comes from Matthew chapter 1. If you turn there in your pew Bibles with me, we're going to focus our attention tonight on just a, a few verses, verses 18 through 25, 18 to the end of that chapter. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's record of the birth of Jesus Christ and, and how that came about, a familiar passage uh, to, to most of us. Matthew chapter 1, this is God's holy word, beginning at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're going to end the reading of God's holy word there, but please keep your Bibles open. We'll look at a a few other passages this evening as well. Well, when it comes to the Christmas account, it's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to get distracted from the profound significance of this event. And I think that's the case because whether we're conscious or not, our perception of the importance of Christmas is often shaped by things other than the Bible. Our perception of of Christmas and its importance is often shaped by popular music on the radio, uh, by familiar hymns in our hymn books, manger scenes and greeting cards. And these typically focus on things like shepherds and their sheep and wise men and their gifts and the angelic choir and even those cute stable animals. And very often, the forgotten character, the forgotten participant in the Christmas drama is Joseph, the earthly father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about it, Joseph really doesn't get a lot of press during Christmas time. He's sort of lurking there in the background with the shepherds, looking on nervously as as Mary rocks her Savior Son to sleep. Everybody wonders, Mary, did you know? Nobody asks, Joseph, what were you thinking? And in fact, the Bible itself contains very little biographical information about Joseph. He never wrote a book of the Bible. He's never quoted in the New Testament. He never wrote an inspired song like his wife, Mary. There are few, if any, songs written specifically about him. What we do know is he was a relatively simple man who lived in the backwoods country of Nazareth working as a carpenter. 
As far as we know, he traveled only a few miles from his birthplace during his entire lifetime. He left the country only once to flee to Egypt in order to protect Jesus from the murderous decree of Herod. And then shortly after Jesus' 12th birthday, Joseph simply drops off the biblical narrative and we never encounter him again. Unlike Mary, Joseph contributed nothing to the personhood of Jesus. Our Lord Jesus inherited His human nature from His mother, who conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Joseph really dwells in the shadows at Christmas time. And yet what I hope we'll notice tonight is that we really lose out on the significance of Christmas if we don't properly understand the role that God assigned to Joseph. Because the role of Joseph in God's saving drama shows us that Christ came to dwell among sinners that have lost all hope in themselves. Sinners who must find their life, their salvation in Jesus alone. Indeed, Joseph's brief participation in the life of Jesus assures us of the glorious truth that there is eternal and abundant life for those who are kingly heirs of God's kingdom by faith alone. And so tonight we're going to consider Joseph, a dry stump, a royal mind, and a genuine faith. Well, many of you know that Matthew's gospel begins with a long list of names, and we like to skim over those names when we come across those chapters in the Scriptures. Those names are unfamiliar to us, uh, part of the time, and, and we wonder if that's just filler in the Scriptures, but it's not. It's, these are important sections of God's Word, and the, the same is here, the case here for Matthew. His purpose here in listing all of these names is to trace out the royal lineage of Jesus. And he begins with Abraham, that pagan man who God chose and, and took out of his land and, and gave gracious promises to him, the promise that through him would come a seed, an offspring, through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the genealogy of Matthew runs from Abraham, and it weaves to the mighty kingdom of David and his descendants. And then it finally trickles through a group of people who are very insignificant, very obscure, ending with Joseph, who Luke tells us was of the house and the line of David. Matthew's point, of course, here in the first part of the first chapter is to demonstrate that Jesus is the one. He's the expected one. He's the hope of Israel. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the promised son of David who would rule over all and remove sin and evil from the kingdom. He's the one who would finally bring peace and righteousness to God's people. And Joseph is that link proving that Jesus is the legal heir of the kingdom promised to Israel. And after all of that, we might conclude that Joseph's a fairly important guy. And then we notice something in Matthew's account. In verse 16, Matthew specifically avoids saying that Joseph is the father of Jesus. Simply, he is described as the husband of Mary. Matthew labors to make clear that Joseph had nothing to do with the conception of Jesus. Jesus. 
And it's rather striking because with all of the fathering going on in chapter 1, all the begetting, Joseph is the glaring exception. Jesus' birth was not by the will of Joseph, Matthew makes clear. And in fact, it could not have been, for then Jesus would simply be a man and totally incapable of saving the human race. Matthew points out that Jesus had to be conceived not by the will of a man like Joseph, but by the will of God as the result of the Holy Spirit's activity in Mary. Only then could Jesus be the God-man, qualified, capable of bearing the punishment of human sin and then putting it away, destroying it by His divine power. It's fitting then that Joseph's significance should be minimal, that he should dwell in the shadows during Christmas time, at least in this sense, so that we remember first that Jesus is not His Son, that Jesus is the very Son of God. He's qualified to be our mediator, our Savior, because Jesus is not subject to the sin and the death and the curse of Adam that surely would have passed on to Him had He been born of Joseph. It's appropriate then, in this sense that Joseph should be minimized in the Christmas account because Christmas is not about Joseph or any human line, but about our Savior who needed to be conceived by the Holy Spirit apart from the will of man. At the same time, we mustn't forget that it was necessary that Jesus should have the status of Joseph's legal son. You may remember that when God established His covenant with David, He promised him something very important. We read in 2 Samuel 7, God's promise to David. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It will not end. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And of course, this promise was immediately kept when, when God gave David his son Solomon, who built the Lord's house, the temple. But the point of this promise is that, that God would have a son of David on the throne, not just for a time, but forever. And to keep that promise, to fulfill His covenant to Israel, the Messiah, the Savior, had to be a son of David. He had to be of the royal line, and Jesus was just that through Joseph, His legal father. And once again, we're, we're tempted to say, Joseph's vindicated. He was a great man after all. And then we notice the condition of that royal line in the days of Joseph. Israel expected God to fulfill His promise to David during a time of great strength, during a time of success for the people of Israel. But Matthew's genealogy tells a different story. Oh, it starts out fairly well with God making a kingdom out of pagans and raising up a strong empire through David and his sons. 
But by the time we get to that last third, the last 14 generations after exile, what's listed here are people that we don't know. They're insignificant. They're obscure. By the time Jesus came into the world, David's kingdom was nothing to look at, nothing to behold. And in fact, Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah chapter 11 had foretold that this is how things would be. In Isaiah 11, the promise is this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, a Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah promises that when that Redeemer came, David's kingdom would be a stump. David's kingdom, when Joseph came, was no longer a great and powerful cedar of Lebanon that grew to the heavens whose branches covered the whole earth. Rather, by the time of Jesus' coming, it had been reduced because of sin and rebellion and judgment to a mere stump. Kids, you've ever seen a stump? Have you ever kicked a stump? That's about all you can do with a stump. Joseph's kingdom was a dry stump, almost extinct, nearly dead. Here again is another reason why Joseph is appropriately minimized during Christmas, because if he represents anyone, it's this. He represents a people who are broken, And under the judgment because of rebellion, Joseph represents the humble in spirit, the sin-sick and weary. He represents the spiritual needy who have exhausted all of their resources, whose kingdoms have crumbled before their very eyes. And against that backdrop, the wonder of Christmas shines through ever more brightly. Because the wonder of Christmas is that the exalted and eternal King of heaven willingly humbled himself to be born of a woman. He humbled himself. He made himself lowly to become the legal heir of a dried-up stump in order to raise up the humble from dust to glory. The glory of Christmas is that by God's grace, a small sprig of new life grew from the dried-up family tree of David to bring new life and an everlasting kingdom, not just to the descendants of David, according to the flesh, but to all who are the spiritual children of Abraham by faith. Jesus came to dwell in our humility. He took on that office, that vocation of Emmanuel, God with us, born not of the will of Joseph, not of the flesh, but of God, to show us that that salvation is not by blood. It's not by birth. It's not by human effort. Salvation is only by the Spirit of God through grace and mercy. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2 exalts the God for this, that Jesus partook of our flesh and blood. He suffered on our behalf so that he might help us who are the offspring of Abraham by faith. That is, 
John's message as well, which we have looked at so thoroughly this last month. John 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but born of God. That's the first and important thing that Joseph's participation at Christmas teaches us. Joseph represents humble sinners like ourselves. But as Matthew unfolds the details of the Christmas account, we also see Joseph in an even greater royal light. As a true son of David, as a man of God, even in the midst of some very trying and troubling circumstances. Look at me again at our text for the evening. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's helpful to to notice that among the Jews, an engagement between a man and a woman held far more significance than it does for us in our American culture. For all intents and purposes, a man and a woman among the Jews who were engaged to be married were practically married. They had really already exchanged marriage vows. They just weren't living yet like a married couple. And so someone who was found to be unfaithful after an engagement was considered an adulterer was considered somebody who had broken their marriage vow. And so when Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant, there was only one thing that he could conclude, that she had been unfaithful to him. There was only one thing that he could surmise, and that was that she had betrayed him. She had broken the sacred bond of their love. And the text indicates that that Joseph agonized over what to do. He loved Mary. He wanted to take her home to live with him in a typical marriage, but she had broken her vow, not just to him, but to God. And he was, this text tells us, above all, a just and a righteous man. He was a man of God. He wanted to do the will of God. He wanted to live before the face of God with his whole heart. And Jewish law permitted him one of two options for dealing with this betrayal of Mary. He could save his own reputation and expose Mary publicly in the courts. He could take the route, in other words, of self-vindication and and retribution, retaliation, or he could quietly and quickly give her papers of divorce, sparing her some public embarrassment, preserving her reputation. And Joseph's choice to divorce her quietly tells us something about him. Charles Spurgeon writes, he was not only of the royal line, he was of a royal mind. Because we see that even before the angel appears to him in a dream and explains to him what's going on, he has already chosen the more more kind and merciful approach. He's a simple man. He he lacks social standing and power or reputation. But Joseph had the mind of a king that pleases the Lord. 
He had a heart that loved justice and promoted virtue and promoted mercy and valued grace. He held on to the very things. He valued the very things that God had commanded of his kingly ancestors, the exact things most of them lacked. He exhibited by the grace of God the characteristics of a true son of David more than that, a child of God. And yet, Joseph's obedience is not really the focus here. He's exemplary, to be sure. But the fact that he fears God says more about God than it does about Joseph. Joseph's royal, righteous mind proved that God had not abandoned his people, that God had not destroyed His covenant people, that despite His judgment upon her sin, there was still a remnant be it a dried-up stump. There was still a remnant from which God would grow a king whose power would be so great and so vast that it would eventually form a righteous canopy over the whole earth. And we're reminded once again that it wasn't Joseph's kingly lineage that made him who he was. Many had come before him with kingly blood flowing through their veins, but wickedness ruling in their hearts. No, what made Joseph a man with a kingly mind was that he was a child of Abraham by faith. And he bore the fruits of equity and love and justice and mercy in his life because he was indwelt by the Spirit of God, by grace. And the same is true for all who put their faith in Joseph's son, Jesus, the true king of his people. For the king gives good gifts to those who fear him. Our God is pleased with us when we walk humbly before him, when we learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Our God is pleased with us when we follow his righteous commandments. He's pleased with us because he has wrapped us in the royal garments of his son. What comes to the forefront here as we look at Joseph's royal mind is God's faithfulness to all who put their trust in Him. Well, despite Joseph's merciful decision, Mary still had some explaining to do. Gratefully for her and for Joseph, uh, one of God's angels was dispatched to Joseph to set the record straight. I pick up here at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, and I want to pause there for a moment. You notice that God comes through the angel to strengthen and to comfort Joseph, and the angel calls him a son of David. Because as the legal heir of David's throne, the one who passed that honor onto Jesus, he graciously is not bypassed in this account, he's not overlooked. He's blessed to know and to believe in and to be saved by the Savior of his ancestors' line. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 
meaning God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I imagine that Joseph must have been immensely relieved after receiving this dream, this angelic dream, though a bit mesmerized, I would think. To know that his betrothed, Mary, had in fact been faithful to him must have encouraged his heart, must have uh, strengthened his spirit, and yes, yet he must have wondered. He must have marveled at this inscrutable plan of God that Mary should conceive the Savior of the world by a creative act of the Spirit of God apart from the will of a man wonder of all wonders. Joseph likely wondered at all this. He must have marveled, but our passage gives us no reason to believe that he doubted for a moment. All through the Christmas narrative, you know that God's angels appeared to a variety of men to herald Jesus' birth. The angels came to the shepherds in the fields, and they were afraid, but they obeyed. They went to see the place where the, the child lay, and they worshiped. Zechariah received an angelic visit. He didn't fare quite as well. He doubted. He was incredulous, and the Lord humbled him, silencing him for a time until he submitted to the Lord's will. But Joseph's response to the angel is one of genuine faith and obedience. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't ask questions. How is this going to work? He's not incredulous. He's not critical of God's plan. He does exactly as the angel commands, and we see that in several ways here. We read that after this visit from the angel, he took Mary as his wife. He followed through with the marriage vows, but he did not know her. He was not intimate with her. He did not have relations with her until she had given birth to a son. What does that indicate about Joseph? He understood the plan. He understood what God was up to. He gets it. He realizes that there must not even be the appearance that this child is his. And that must have been difficult for him. To watch his wife carry this child, to know that this child was not his, and yet he believed because he knew that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and needed to be conceived by the Holy Spirit so that this child could save him of his sins. And so he believed and he obeyed the word of the Lord. And then after he is born, we read, At the end of Matthew 1, and he, that is Joseph, of course Mary did as well, but he, Joseph, called his name Jesus. He followed through. He obeyed God's command to name the child appropriately after his mission as the Savior of the world. Joseph heard God's Word. He believed it without doubting, and he obeyed. At the beginning of Hebrews, the writer begins in this way. He says, in these last days, we've been given the Word of God 
not by a prophet, not by a mere man. We have the very Word of Christ. We have the final, the full revelation of God, which has been compiled and preserved by the Holy Spirit, contained in the Holy Scriptures. It's a glorious news of salvation for sinners that God has provided the solution to our human predicament. His own Son, the Scriptures tell us, has been given for the a perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin. This Savior who can alone secure the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with God who has made us for Himself. This Word, Peter says in his epistle, is where we find everything that we need for life and godliness. And as it was for Joseph, so it is for us. There can only be one of two responses to this Word. A word of obedience and belief or a response of doubt and disobedience. There is no third option. How will you respond to this word? Will you criticize it and question it and doubt it? Or will you embrace it in faith and live a life worthy of the gospel? Will you, like Joseph, Prepare yourself, ready yourself to obey the Word of Christ, even if God's will should at times seem mysterious and inscrutable to you. God's call, His command to all His sons and daughters through Jesus Christ are to hear His Word, to believe that Word and to obey that Word without hesitation. No, Joseph doesn't get much attention at Christmas time. And perhaps it's fitting that he should fade into the background so that his Savior and ours might be exalted above all. But Joseph is nevertheless worthy of some attention because the Bible tells us to learn from the examples, both good and bad, of our ancestors in the faith. It's not moralistic to do so. It's simply to recognize that God's role for Joseph has much to teach us about the grace and the patience and the love of God for common sinners like you and me. The life of Joseph reminds us once again that our salvation is the result of God's initiative, not the will of man. We contribute nothing to the equation of our salvation except our sin and our failure much like Joseph's dried-up stump of an ancestry. And yet, we now belong with Joseph to the spiritual royal family of God. We belong to an eternal kingdom that will never die out, that will never be cut down. We belong not because of power and prestige, reputation, or personal goodness, we belong because of God's saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we leave this passage in wonder, worshiping the Son of God, who condescended to be born the Son of Man. And we marvel that our God became our brother, our bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, 
We marvel that He dwelt among us to lift us out of the death and darkness of our sin and to give eternal abundant life to our sin-wracked souls. And so we pray, the nearer He comes to us, the more humbly let us adore Him, the more true the kinship of our King, the more enthusiastically let us crown Him Lord of all. Amen.